Lord, we come to you this morning and we count it a sweet privilege uh, to be in the presence of a holy God and to, to sing of your greatness, to know of your greatness, to even be able to sing of it. Lord, we thank you for making yourself known. We thank you for being knowable. We thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit that we might have understanding and that we might be able to persevere in the expectations that you have set forth for us. Lord, I've trusted you in the uh, preparation of this sermon and I also trust you in the delivery of it. And I know that without the work of the Holy Spirit, it's just fleshly and it's just words and it's just information. And so we humble ourselves before you this morning and ask that you would do something that is greater uh, than us, that you would give us understanding that goes beyond what we would have if we didn't have something else at work. Lord, in general, I do want to continue in what we've been doing and pray for our civil authorities, uh, that they would lead in such a way that is um, glorifying to you and that the environment of our community would be conducive for the um, communication of eternal truths and of the gospel. Lord, I also pray for all the other local churches that are meeting right now to know that you are at work in so many different capacities. We sit here as one gathering of your people, seeing only a small part of what you're, you're really doing, and it's sweet to know that. I pray that that makes us enjoy our corporate worship time even more but it also fills us with joy knowing there are other brothers and sisters all over this town worshiping you wholeheartedly and digging into the word that they might know your will more clearly. Lord, I also want to pray this morning for Neil and Debbie Landrum, um, friends of the uh, Jones family, and, or the Ruth family, and uh, as they uh, have are dealing with the, the death of a loved one, I pray that you would be their comfort, that you would encourage them in truth, that you would give them peace that exceeds understanding, and that you would allow Bill and Deborah to to minister to them in a way that is uplifting and encouraging uh, through a hard time. Lord, please guide our time this morning. This is all for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Romans 12. This morning we're going to be talking about spiritual gifts. And even as I say that, um, there could potentially be a number of different expectations. Um, You may be thinking, I'm going to get out of here because it's about to get crazy. Someone's going to start talking about spiritual gifts. You may be hoping for it to get crazy because someone's talking about spiritual gifts, the work of the Spirit. Um, I feel the need, just before we even look at the text, to sort of diffuse the bomb of sensational expectations. This morning is going to be largely foundational. There are some things that the Word shows us that we must understand before we even really open up a discussion about spiritual gifts, there are foundational truths and thoughts and the way that God would have us think that we must have before we begin to consider uh, the gifts of the Spirit and how we use them and how he pours them out. So you probably have a lot of questions about spiritual gifts. A lot of us have different questions. Everybody I've talked to this week has said, oh, are you going to include this part? Oh, are you going to talk about this thing? Or what about this dynamic? Or what about this belief that these people have over here? And you may still have those questions at the end of the sermon. But hopefully, you have a biblical foundation to help begin to answer those questions. I may not answer them all directly. We're not going to talk about a lot of specifics this week. We will next week. But this week, it's the general purpose and use of spiritual gifts. And our key text will be Romans 12, verses 1 through 6. So let's read that. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. 
For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. A few weeks ago at the end of his sermon uh, from Hebrews 2, Ben encouraged us to go and walk in our gifting. And you may have had an encouraging time in your small group that week where you sort of affirm some of the gifting that each of you see in each other. Um, It sounds and seems simple enough at first, but as I thought about it more, a number of questions began to flood my thoughts in regards to this call to go walk in your gifting. I thought to myself, I'm a pastor, but do I really know what my spiritual gifts are and how that plays out? How are we supposed to learn about our spiritual gifting? Most people have someone tell them what their spiritual gifting is, but what if the person telling them is crazy? What if the person telling them is just wrong? What if the person trying to tell me what my spiritual gifts are thinks that they have the gift of discernment, but they really don't? What's in it for me at that point? I've also taken spiritual gift assessments, but many of them seem to just be interest assessments. They ask questions like, do you like to serve people? And then they conclude, if you answered yes, then you must have the gift of service. But we have to see that that is very different than asking, have you ever actually helped anyone? So it can just be, are you interested in that? But that doesn't mean you're having a gifting that you're walking in that can be affirmed that you grow in. And so those are some of my experiences with spiritual gifts and how we figure out what they are. And then as we, you know, peel back the layers a little more, many of us have potentially witnessed exhibitions that show misunderstanding in regards to spiritual gifts. Uh, Some of us may have seen misuse of spiritual gifts in some manner. Some of us sitting here may have had experiences that you can't really explain. Like, I I don't know what that was, but it was, maybe it was a spirit. I hope it was a spirit, but maybe it was just crazy. I don't even, I don't even know. Maybe you have an experience that you can't really give words to. Some of us have seen the gifts made a mockery of, and the result is that we may actually steer away from the use of spiritual gifts as sort of an overcompensation. So my hope this morning is that we can peel back some of the stereotypes and misconceptions by considering the general purpose and use of spiritual gifts as God defines it in his breathed out word. I could talk all day about the different opinions that different people have or the different theories and theologies and and doctrines that people hold and the different applications that different Jesus-loving, God-fearing men and women have but I think we just need to go to the text this morning. So look at verses 1 through 2 again in Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, At the end of July, I preached a sermon on these two verses. In short, these two verses are a sort of a a turning point and an apex in in the book of Romans. That I appeal to you, therefore, is referring back to the first 11 chapters. Remember, anytime we come to Scripture and we see a therefore, we ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? And it's pointing us back to the first 11 chapters in Romans. John Stott, uh, who has a great commentary on Romans, explains it like this. He says, For 11 chapters, Paul has been unfolding the mercies of God. For 11 chapters, he's been unfolding the mercies of God, and indeed the gospel is precisely God's mercy to inexcusable and undeserving sinners. In giving his son to die for them, in justifying them freely by faith, and in sending them his life-giving spirit, and in making them his children. So what we see Paul doing in the 12th chapter of Romans is he's making an appeal to us to respond rightly to the gospel, to the church in Rome first, obviously, but to us to respond rightly to the gospel. And in verse 3, he continues the appeal by showing us how these new minds are supposed to think. Remember, it says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that we can know what the will of God is. And so verse 3 continues his appeal so that we can see how is this new mind in Christ supposed to be thinking? So look at verse 3. By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, 
but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So the first step in thinking rightly in, in your new life in Christ is not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. There are many people who will find this to be a very difficult step. I don't nudge someone you're sitting by or point to this guy over here. But many people will actually have a difficult time in not thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think. That's why Paul's addressing it. So why would this be the very first thing that he addresses in this huge moment? This is a big moment. I mean, he has this doctrinal, buttery, sweet goodness of 11 chapters of Romans where he is woven together, woven, yes, we'll go with woven, woven together this unbelievable framework and foundation of what Jesus has done and what it means for sinners desperately in need of forgiveness and grace. And he comes to this moment, he says, and this is what it means for you as a Christian. This is what it means in, in your life. This is a huge moment. And he could have said, new believers, think about eternity. New believers, think about the infinite worth of knowing Jesus. New believers, think about what you've been saved from. But instead, Paul goes to the issue of pride and conceit. This is a big moment, and Paul says, as we apply this, let's go to the issue of pride and conceit. Because with pride in the way, our thoughts and our actions and our living will not go as high as God has designed them to go. Our thinking won't be clear with pride and conceit in the way. Our living won't be worshipful. This, spiritual, this life of spiritual worship won't happen with pride and conceit in the way. When we try to spread the wings of freedom in Christ and fly high in the realities that God has revealed, pride is like a chain attached to a big stone that just keeps us on the ground. Last week, Brad preached a great sermon on boasting in our weaknesses. I'm taking something Brad said and something that Paul Tripp said and combining it because I find them both to be smart guys. Conceit is being satisfied in myself and then convincing others of my infinite worth. That's what conceit is. Conceit is being satisfied in myself and, being, and then convincing others of my infinite worth. Well, that's very different than not thinking too highly of yourself than you ought to think. That's why Paul's addressing this from the get-go. Brad explained that Paul, the apostle, not Trip, um, Brad explained that Paul, the apostle, the one who wrote the letter to Rome, the one who wrote the letters to the Corinthian church, that Paul came to a moment in his ministry where he was potentially thinking, man, I've got to validate myself. Like, I've got to show these people that I'm legit. And what was happening was the people were wanting Paul to do a little shock and awe by healing or working of miracles or speaking in tongues. And Paul's response was that he would boast in his weakness, not his spiritual gifts. Think of it in those terms. Paul's response was that he would boast in his weakness, not his spiritual gifts. And the reason for that is that spiritual gifts are not to be boasted in. That's not the purpose that they serve. That's foolishness. You are, if you're boasting in your spiritual gifts, you're not thinking of yourself with sober judgment. You're thinking more highly than you ought to think of yourself. So Paul says, I won't do that, but rather what I'll do is I'll boast in my weaknesses because Christ's strength is made perfect in my weaknesses and the thing that will build up the faith of other people is for them to see the greatness of Christ, not for me to put a show on and boast in my spiritual gifts. That's not what spiritual gifts are for. So Paul knows that Christ's strength is made perfect in his weakness. The Spirit always points to the greatness of Christ. If you see someone trying to say, oh, the Spirit is doing something and there's not much about Jesus there, that should be reason for pause. It says always weigh what is said. Weigh it with the Word. That's, that's our standard. So if you're a person who is constantly trying to validate yourself, the Holy Spirit could be wrongly used as a real pick-me-up. But all that you're really doing is attributing fleshly pursuits to the work of the Spirit which is actually called blasphemy of the Spirit, which is really bad. And you do that so that you look more spiritual. Why would we want to look more spiritual? Why would we not actually want to be more filled with the Spirit? What would cause us to want to just look more spiritual to everybody else? I think the thing that causes that is that we care more about what others think than what God thinks. And when you care more about what others think, you cannot love that person the way that God calls you to love that person. We must 
love God first and care about what he thinks more than what people think so that we can love people the right way, which is actually a big purpose in the expression of our gifts. One indicator of this kind of movement, I want you to ask yourselves, am I doing this? Am I, am I misusing, you know, this, these spiritual gifts? Um, one indicator is to ask yourself, um, do, do you use your gifts only in public settings? Are you okay with helping someone out in a quiet way? Do you seek the more seemingly flashy gifts so that you can show everyone how awesome you really are? In part, this is what Paul is addressing. See, the church in Corinth wrote Paul a letter asking about spiritual gifts, and Paul responded by saying, Brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed in regards to the spiritual gifts. That applies to us this morning. I do not want us to be uninformed in, re in regards to the spiritual gifts. And to Rome, Paul addresses the same problem by saying, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to be thinking of yourself. The issue being addressed is people becoming puffed up and conceited, trying to choose gifts of grace that were seemingly better than those of the less faithful. And we have to know this morning that the church is not the place for such arrogant pursuits. If that's your goal, you want to join a church so everyone knows how awesome and spiritual you are, that's not a right pursuit. This is not the place for that. The direction Paul provides for the sober judgment is found in the second half of the verse. It says, think with sober judgment. We're in verse 3 in chapter 12 of Romans. Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This is what keeps you from thinking too highly of yourselves. This is what keeps you from thinking more highly of yourselves than you ought to think. So that you might live a life of sacrificial worship to God. There has been a measure of faith assigned to every believer. And God is the one doing the assigning. So, hear that. God assigns measures of faith to every believer. The measures are different depending on the believer, and the measures are different depending upon which way the wind's blowing sometimes. I may have a really strong measure of faith in the morning, and I'm walking in the flesh in the afternoon, and you see this, this, these differences. But when I talk about a measure of faith, if you immediately think, well, do I have a big one? Do I have a big measure of faith? Do I have a, a mighty measure of faith? Do I... Do I have a weak measure? What do people think? Do people think I have a weak measure? That's pride and conceit. Don't go there. Seek, or as it says in Corinthians, pursue the spiritual gifts. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Don't fall victim to pride and conceit, which, which muddies the water in regards to spiritual gifts. God is the one doing the assigning. For anyone to boast in this, would be completely unfounded confidence. Have you ever seen someone boasting in something that they shouldn't be boasting in? And you're like, what? Who do they think they are? How do, what, what in the world do they think? They're publicly saying how awesome they are, and it has nothing to do with them. They're taking credit for something that someone else has done. That just annoys us, right? Who, who do they think that they're boasting in something they didn't even do? That's what it would be like to boast in your spiritual gifts. God assigns the measure of faith to believers. It would be like someone using horrible judgment. Like there's, I think there's TV shows dedicated to this. People using horrible judgment and putting themselves in harm's way. None of us watch that, I know. But it would be like, to boast in this, would be like you using horrible judgment. And your horrible judgment puts you in harm's way. And you almost die because of it. So someone's running the video. You do something and so, say, I'm going to jump off this thing. Everybody watch. And you use horrible judgment, and you put yourself in harm's way, and you almost die because of it. And then someone literally breathes life back into your dead lungs. And then you stand up and boast about your breath. That would seem out of place, wouldn't it? To stand up and boast about your breath in such a time as that? Why would that be out of place? Well, it's borrowed. You wouldn't have it if not for the gift of another and that's how it is with spiritual gifts. Boasting is foolish. It is God who pours out the measure of faith according to his purposes and his will as he sees fit. We are vessels of mercy to be poured out as he sees fit. So boasting is foolish. Look at verse 4. For as in one body <clears throat> we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. 
having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Verse 4 begins a transition where I want us to step back just for a moment and see the big picture, and then we'll climb back down into the details. But there's a transition here that's necessary for us to catch. Paul is making an appeal to live a life of worship. So believers need to listen up. And to do so, we must be transformed by the renewal of our mind. We can't just muster it. We can't just try to muster different spiritual gifts and measures of faith. He says, you, you humble yourselves before the Lord. You live a life of spiritual worship. Everything you do is to be worshiped for the glory of God. And the renewed mind, you're supposed to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And the renewed mind cannot think and must not think of itself more highly than it ought to think. So look at this big picture view. Paul's saying, this is your life in Christ. You must not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Pride does not go with faith. And then this big picture view, Paul, in helping us to think worshipfully, he immediately goes and severs the root of pride and conceit. And then he helps us to see ourselves as members of one another. That's the big picture view we have to have because then and only then can we begin a discussion about spiritual gifts, what they are and how we use them. If we don't have that foundation of a, being transformed by the renewal of our mind, renewed minds thinking soberly in regards to ourselves, not prideful, not full of conceit, we must see ourselves in that place as members of one another because we are members of Christ. At that point, we can talk about spiritual gifts. That's the bird's eye view. So let's climb back down into this now that we see the bigger picture. Members of one another. He says, as in one body, we have many members. And the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. God has assigned each of his children a measure of faith. What this means, you should be encouraged by this. Because this means that no one is left out, and it also means that no one is exempt. So you may be encouraged in thinking, oh, I, I have spiritual gifting that maybe I didn't know about. Or you might be encouraged in saying, well, I thought maybe I could be exempt and I didn't have to do anything. Nope, that's not the case either. So God has assigned each of his children a measure of faith, and this means that no one is left out or exempt. And this should be an encouragement. What this means is that it is impossible to be a member of the body, think members of each other, and not have a measure of faith that comes in the form of a spiritual gift or gifts of grace. I'm using those terms interchangeably. For some of you, that may very well be a surprise. Now look at what God does here. He, the creator of the human body, aims to use the human body as a living and breathing example of your new life in Christ. I think this is so cool. There's a psalm that talks about how God made all of his plans in infinite wisdom before time even existed because time is a created thing. And in his infinite wisdom, he made these plans and then he created time so that there might be this medium in which these plans could, could exist. And as a bunch of image bearers sitting here, it's, it's pretty cool to think that God created and formed the human body. He made us in his image. And now what he's wanting to do here in these verses is use the human body as a picture, a living and breathing example of your new life in Christ. Your identity is now that of a member of a body. And the result is that you are members of one another, each of you members of the body of Christ. That's what it means to be a believer, a Christian, a follower of Christ. So consider for a moment what this says about membership. When someone stands up here and joins the church, they stand in front of us as new members, hands, feet, eyes, ears, not always having the same gifts and every one of the gifts being important for the health of the body. God goes further in wanting to make it clear that you do not all serve the same function. For he says, as in one body there are many members. We do not all serve the same function. There are, by sovereign and, design, and divine design, supposed to be different people who serve different functions within a body of believers. I want you to hear that God has not chosen to get his glory by sameness. God has not chosen to get his glory by everybody being the same. He has chosen to be glorified in the differences. So if you're aiming to find a church home, that informs that. Because if you think, well, I want to find a church where everyone's like me. God doesn't aim to get his glory in sameness. God gets his glory in the differences. It may be hard for us to understand, but that's no way to choose 
friends. That's no way to choose a church home. That I, I just like to be with everyone who's just like me. That is to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think because you're setting yourself as the standard for the people you like to be around. That's arrogance at its peak, maybe. It is an honor to God and a proclamation of his glorious gospel for the members of a church to serve their different functions, never thinking too highly of themselves, eager to build up others, yet seeing the need that they have for everyone else. This is how a healthy body functions. Have you ever heard the cases where the body rejects an organ? Like a spleen or something? Like someone's body begins to reject their spleen or something important? It usually is bad for the whole body. So this is how a healthy body functions that we're seeing in this text. Those pursuing sameness are not pursuing that which the Spirit produces. One pastor insightfully says this. Listen closely. Evidently, God knows that a body of believers who not only have different gifts but different degrees of faith will bring more glory to him when they are enabled by grace to live in sweet harmony without pride for greater faith or despair for lesser faith. More glory than if everyone were simply identical in faith and spiritual strength. There's beauty in the diversity by God's design. But I think there's also a warning here. Do not use this as an excuse for weak faith. Do not use this as an excuse to say, well, someone's got to be stronger. I kind of did that in high school where someone's like, well, what's your class rank? I was like, let's just say I make the top half possible. Um, we don't do that with our spiritual gifts. We should, we, we don't use excuses like, well, someone else will get it. Or it's okay um, if I don't grow in my faith. Do not use this as an excuse. Though God does receive his glory according to, his, to this design, another part of this design is that each of us are strong in faith. That's what Ephesians 6.10 says. And that we're seeking to grow in grace. So think of it like this. There are different measures of faith, but everyone with any measure of faith is to be growing in their faith. There are different measures of faith, but everyone with any measure of faith is to be growing in that faith. Sober judgment in regard to ourselves and seeing ourselves as members of one another in the body of Christ are central to opening up this discussion on spiritual gifts. Because if you are not humbly seeking the upbuilding of faith in others and ultimately the beauty of the bride, then I want you to know that you have no real business with the gifts of the Spirit. If you care more about how you look as opposed to how the body looks, I don't even want you to dabble in it. If you do not aim to make much of Christ in every work of the Spirit in your life and you want to use some of that to make much of yourself, don't even dabble in it. That's not God's intention. But if we have this groundwork, of thinking with sober judgment in regards to ourselves and seeing ourselves as members of one another because we are members of Christ, then we can talk a little more specifically about spiritual gifts, which is what verse 6 does. So let's look at it. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use our differing gifts. Scripture is not afraid to state the obvious, is it? Scripture is not afraid to state the obvious. Gifts are for use. Why is that stated? Well, I think some of us have a tendency to take our most treasured things and hide them away. Some of us have a tendency to take our most treasured things and hide them away. But what if your most treasured things are designed to be shared? This is why I've always thought china cabinets were sort of silly. I grew up with a china cabinet in my house, so don't judge me, but like you, you go and register for this really fancy plates and bowls, and then you put them in a cabinet and say, no one touches them. Like the design and purpose is to eat food from them, but we're going to display them with lights and expensive cabinetry. It just seems silly. You're supposed to eat food off of them. One of our biggest fights in our marriage happened in that first week where I took our most expensive bowl that we had gotten and I was eating cinnamon toast crunch out of it. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm using this for the purpose it was created. Um, I eat adult cereal now with grain, fiber. 
I don't eat cinnamon toast crunch anymore. So to take something that's treasured and hide it away doesn't make sense, especially when we're talking about spiritual gifts. Your gifts were made largely for other people. There must be an expression and faithful use that forwards the gifts of grace to other people. At this point, as we're looking at Romans, it'd be good to look at some of the general details of the use of the gifts of grace in other areas of Scripture. Because he says, let us use them. So if we can look at a few other satellites in Scripture about the use of the spiritual gifts, I think it will give us some insight and understanding next week, maybe, as we talk about the specifics. So if you were to be just reading through the New Testament from front to back, from, from beginning to end, the first place that you would encounter spiritual gifts is in Romans 1. So turn there. Turn to Romans 1. I'm going to read these verses and then share a little timeline so that we can gain a bit of insight into Paul's communication. Romans 1, verses 8 through 12 says this. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. And without ceasing, that without ceasing, I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So Paul is really eager to go to the church in Rome. He really wants to go and see them. Well, why? What does the next verse say? For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may both be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So in 55 AD, don't zone out. When you hear AD, sometimes there's a tendency to just be and fall asleep. Don't do that. In 55 AD, Paul was doing ministry work in Ephesus. And from there, he wrote his first letter to the church in Corinth. A year later, in 56 AD, he wrote his second letter, which we know as 2 Corinthians, to the church in Corinth. And then in 57 AD, Paul actually went to Corinth after writing the letters to do ministry work there and to serve the body there. And from Corinth, Paul wrote his letter to the church in Rome. So that gives us a little timeline here. And the reason I think we need that is this. While Paul was exercising his spiritual gifts, he was also teaching and writing and even anticipating about how they should be used. So in Romans 12, 6, when Paul says, let us use them, we can see from Romans 1 what he means. First, the use of our spiritual gifts is to strengthen others, not to look awesome, not to put on a show. First, the use of our spiritual gifts is to strengthen others. When we lose sight of this God-ordained goal, this is when spiritual gifts are often misused. So each of us sitting here as members of the, the bride of Christ, the body of believers, the local church, each of us sitting here can safely say, God has given me gifts of grace, spiritual gifts, to build up the faith of other people. We can say that with certainty. God has given every single believer spiritual gifts, gifts of grace, for the sake of building up the faith of other people and strengthening the faith of other people. But it doesn't stop there. What does it say in verse 12? That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. The cool thing about this is that Paul was writing a letter that was to be read in the corporate worship gathering of the Church of Rome. So, if this letter was to be read in front of everybody, this means that Paul sees not just the strong in faith, but even the weakest in faith, and everyone in between as having faith that both needs encouragement and offers encouragement. Do you view your church like that? Every single person has faith that both needs encouragement and offers encouragement. So on top of each of us being able to say that our gifts are to strengthen the faith of others, we can also state that everyone else, those sitting by you, look to your left and to your right and see the other believers. And know that everyone else in the body of believers has gifts that God intends to use to strengthen my faith and your faith and each other's. So a faithful body is full of strength. That's an encouragement. And we could also say that a faithful body is full of encouragement. 
One pastor said that this dynamic should result in the church being the humblest and happiest place on earth. It's something else that gets the moniker of happiest place on earth for most people. But the church should be the humblest and happiest place on earth. Has that been your experience? Maybe it has something to do with the understanding and the use of our spiritual gifts. The church should be the humblest and happiest place on earth. If each of us has gifts from God, gifts of grace, gifts of the Spirit that we use to encourage others while we are being encouraged and strengthened by others. That's a beautiful picture. That brings in all the imagery that we've studied before of perichoresis and the Holy Spirit and that dynamic and that blur where we're all working together for the beauty of the bride and the glory of God. We need to see that this is not just one small part of spiritual gifts, but it is a huge central point to the general purpose and use of spiritual gifts. Turn to 1 Corinthians 12. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. You can follow along if you like, but I just want to hit some specific verses to give us some general understanding. When Paul says, having gifts that differ, let us use them, uh, there's some things that we can see that help us to generally understand what that means. These verses in 1 Corinthians are some of the most exhaustive teaching in our Bible on spiritual gifts. So whatever is repeated in this section is obviously important. So look at 12.1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Being rightly informed in regards to spiritual gifts is important to the health of the church. Look at verses 4 through 7. There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. So your spiritual gifts, we see in those few verses, are related to the Trinity. The Spirit, the Son, and the Father helping you to live out a life of worship and use of your gifts. And look at what it says in verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Not just for your own personal good, but for the common good. Look at verses 25 through 26 that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 4. And don't get caught up on the speaking in tongues thing. Look at the general purpose and use that we're trying to understand. 14 verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Let's look at what's repeated. Look at verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets. So that the church may be built up. The church being built up is a theme. Look at it in verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, Strive to excel in building up the church. Look at verse 17. There's a problem where this is being misused, and it says, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Why is that a problem? Because the purpose is the church being built up. Look at verse 17. That was 17. Look at verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. We are built up in as much as we understand the beauty of Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord. So these spiritual gifts and the work of the Spirit will always point to Jesus. It's to be orderly, and the purpose is for it to be done in a manner of building up the beauty of the church, the beauty of the bride, and our understanding of Jesus. God's design for his glory and for the forward movement of his kingdom on earth is a beautiful bride that is being built up, becoming more and more beautiful by its members who are using their gifts for the good of each other and for the glory of God. Turn to 1 Peter 4. It's to the right. 1 Peter 4, 7. Through 10. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, and here we see something else that we've seen before, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. How do we define sober-minded? Well, at the very least, it's not thinking too highly of yourself and making sure you understand your place as members of one another. 
So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. What we have to see here is we're not just to receive these gifts, but we're to be good stewards of them. That's a foundational general purpose and use of the spiritual gifts. We are not to just receive them, but we are to be good stewards of them. So I want you to think, what is stewardship? Consider the necessary factors that contribute to good stewardship. Take your budget, for example. If you hear God saying, be a good steward of those resources, it would not be sufficient for you to say, I don't even know what I have. Would it? God says, be a good steward of those resources. It would not be sufficient for you to say, I I don't even know about those resources. I don't even know how much is there. I do the swipe and cross my fingers method when I buy things. This would not be good stewardship. So what we can see here is if you hear God saying, be a good steward of those resources, God expects stewardship. And that means he also expects a few other things. In a budget, you would have to know your income and your savings and your responsibilities and your debts and your upcoming expenses, and you would also be, if you were truly being good stewards, looking for opportunities to bless others. So let's translate that into spiritual gift language. If we do that, if we translate it to spiritual gift language, it is not sufficient to say, I don't even know what gifts I have. If God says be a good steward, it means you should know what the gifts are. You should know potentially how you're gifted And that's affirmed by other people. It's encouraged in the community of faith. We'll talk more about these specifics next week. But at the very least, if he says, be good stewards of of grace, don't don't say, I don't even know. I don't, I don't know. I guess foolishness is divine and good. I don't, I'm not, I can't be held accountable. No, you'll be held accountable. You can't say, I don't know what gifts I have. Rather, you should seek to understand the spiritual gifts. See where God is gifting you at the particular time. See where the needs of others may be met by your gifts. This is stewardship. Stewardship takes some work. Any of you who have gone from having a train wreck budget to an orderly budget, stewardship is often talked about as good order, you know that takes some work. It's the same with spiritual gifts. The opposite of stewardship is squandering. The opposite of stewardship is squandering. To be good stewards of God's very grace is a picture of good order within a body of believers in which you are members of one another. Turn over to Ephesians 4. This will be our last satellite. Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Though specifically the gifts mentioned here differ, the ultimate purpose of each of them is the same, the building up of the body of Christ. So each week you come to corporate worship and you listen to the preached word. You are saints being equipped for a work of ministry. You are then challenged every week to go and walk in the word. How many times have you heard it? Go walk in the word. To be doers of the word and not hearers only. To be sincere worshipers and not hypocrites. This is largely encouraged through involvement in small groups where there's accountability and opportunity. So what I think we need to see this week is that walking in the word will largely happen through your gifting. It's important. Walking in the word, being doers of the word and not hearers only, being sincere worshipers and not hypocrites will happen largely through your gifting. God gives us spiritual gifts of grace so that we can be doers of the word and not just hearers. Next week, we'll talk about some of the specifics, but the foundation that we see today is that we can have a church that's led by elders, an elder-led church with solid doctrine, sound financial movement, expository preaching, active deacons, active small groups, 
But if the members of the body are not using their gifts of grace and faith for the strengthening of faith in others, then that church will be very unhealthy. Good stewards will see the value of the resource and seek to use it to the utmost glory of God. Good stewards see the value of the resource. Good stewards will sever the root of pride with sober judgment and renewed minds. Good stewards will see themselves as members of the body of Christ and members of one another, and they will be eager to make good use of the differing gifts that each of us have in the outpouring of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I confess I'm sort of overwhelmed by all the unanswered questions right now. Even in the preaching of this sermon, I had at least 50 questions pop into my head. Well, what about this? What about that? So my prayer is that this morning we would see what you want us to see, that we would be warned how you want us to be warned, and that we would be building a foundation that helps us to both understand the spiritual gifts, have insight and discernment in regards to the spiritual gifts, have sober judgment in regards to ourselves, so that we might see as we are members of one another, we have great opportunity to use our gifts. Lord, there's such misunderstanding in regards to your gifts of grace. There's such misuse. And I confess that I'm fearful of that. I'm fearful of misstating something and thereby contributing to the problem. But I pray that in some of these really basic things this morning, that you would allow us to see the beauty that you intend in this. That we would not turn from a wonderful treasure that's meant to build up other people. As we talk about the specifics next week, I pray that these general realities would inform us and encourage us in the truth so that we might not step off into one ditch or another, but that we might serve you wholeheartedly in faith and in obedience. Thank you for gifting every believer in this room in a beautiful way that we might serve one another and thereby serve you and proclaim the glorious gospel you've entrusted to us. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take the Lord's Supper at this time. We take it each week for good reason. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. I actually, it's necessary to turn there for the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. Now read these verses that we, we've read a lot. Read them in light of the things that Paul has revealed in other portions of Scripture this morning. As we prepare to take the supper, 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. I'll, I'll confess, the first time I read that as a believer, I thought to myself, why is he surprised? There's always divisions in the church. That's sort of a, isn't that part of what it means to be in a church? Division? That's what I thought the first time I read that as a young believer. But Paul would say otherwise. He said, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. In the Corinthian church, they had some real issues when it came to the Lord's Supper, which is what we're about to take. And as I, as I read these verses, it seems to me that they must not have been good stewards of God's grace. For that to be the circumstance for them, when they took the Lord's Supper, they must not have been good stewards of God's grace. Rather, they were selfish. Their eyes had turned inward. They were still gathering, 
They were still going through the motions. But Paul says, you guys have the bread and you guys have the cup, but it is not the Lord's Supper that you're taking. Please realize that this could be true for us here this morning if we are not careful. We have the bread and we have the cup. But if our interest is mainly in ourselves, if we are not using the gifts of the Spirit to make much of Christ and thereby strengthening the faith of others, then it is in fact not the supper that we are eating. It's something altogether different. So as we pass these elements, I I, I encourage you to set your mind on the Spirit. Romans 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So I'd encourage you as we pass these elements, mindfully consider how God has gifted you. In what ways are you seeing the result of your endeavors as bigger than yourself? How can you spend and be spent gladly on souls? In what ways could you be a better steward? And how can you leave here today and walk obediently in your gifts for the specific upbuilding of another? Think through those things as we pass the elements. In taking part in the supper, we are proclaiming that we are members of the body of Christ and thereby members of one another. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. As members of the body of Christ and as members of one another, in specific remembrance of what our Savior has done, take and drink. Lord, as we continue in worship, I pray that you just you find us wholehearted, uh, walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Lord, as we continue in song, I pray that the words from our lips would truly be the outpouring of a heart that is completely devoted to our Lord, that is eager for the gifts of grace and the works of the Spirit. I pray that as we worship in giving, that we would also do so wholeheartedly and not begrudgingly as a response to how blessed we are with infinite treasure that goes beyond our understanding. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the work of the Spirit that takes us beyond what we would just accomplish in the flesh. And it's so good. It's so good that God gives us such gifts that it'd be easy to get up here and preach a whole sermon and say, I think that went good because I studied a lot. That's just flesh. That, that's, maybe there's natural ability being used, but that's not spiritual. Natural things impart natural things. Spiritual things impart spiritual things. And so the Holy Spirit is a gift, and I hope that we learn and understand to, to rightly treasure the Spirit. I wanted to close with a quote from another pastor who said it as clear as I could ever say it. And then uh, I'll turn it over to Ben. Uh, present a new member. New member. Don't miss that. Um, but this pastor in shepherding his flock he said we must not get hung up on naming our gifts the thing to get hung up on is are we doing what we can to strengthen the faith of the people around us when you become this kind of person the Holy Spirit will not let your longings go to waste he will help you find ways to strengthen the faith of others and that will be the discovery of your gifts I think that's a very sober thinking in regards to spiritual gifts, which we'll talk more about specifics next week. Ben? I was thinking about music as a great image and metaphor of really the work of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the body. I was trying to recollect if we've ever had a solo, and I think we may have had one or two in eight years, which is funny because I grew up in a a setting where that was frequent. In fact, it was likely every Sunday. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we're not um, dissing that uh, to, to suggest that's that's not right. But I think this corporate singing is a great metaphor of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. When when we're exercising them, it's not a solo and it's not a quartet that we're spectating, but we become a symphony that Greenville spectates. It's a big difference. And when we're all playing our part and we've uh, worked toward identifying what that part is and then we walk in it 
and we hit this note that really brings glory to God. I had a couple of um, other notes that I thought I would bring up. Kyle, why don't you come on down here? I know you're running the soundboard, but maybe somebody can cover for you um, for the moment. Sometimes in counseling folks or visiting folks, I find sort of this down, depressed sort of feeling where they're like, man, I, you can just tell it's meaninglessness. This thing that nobody wants is the thing that we often so struggle with is meaninglessness and really trying to find, man, where's my identity? Where can I be used? And um, interestingly, as Scott was preaching, I was thinking, man, that's finding it. When you find what you were made for and you walk in it, then you find meaning and you find purpose and you find identity and God is glorified in that because what you—that's what you were made for. And I was thinking about that would be um, an appropriate thing to to consciously consider. Sometimes I hear from folks almost the the impression that if I were happier, then I would go use my gifting. And funny enough, that's sort of like putting the egg in front of the chicken. If I were happier, then I would go use my gifting. And really, it should be the other way around, is as you use your gifting, there's a blessedness and a joy that comes from that as you're used for what you're made for. I think membership in some ways, uh, Kyle is up here for membership this morning. Um, Kyle was baptized last Sunday night. He was baptized as an infant. And uh, uh, yes, before last Sunday. <laughs> yeah, it's been, a, it's been a crazy week. God has the gift of sense of humor already. You can see that. Um, he was baptized as an infant years ago, and he was baptized by immersion into this people last Sunday. Some of the things that we've been considering regarding baptism, about they are associated with an appeal to God for a good conscience through the finished work of Christ. It's hard to make that appeal as an infant. And without completely dissing infant baptism, because it is something. It's where a family's presenting their child to the people of God. It is something, but it's not the same thing that we would call confessional baptism, which is what, if you're a member here, that you've gone through. So Kyle did that this last week, confessional baptism, and he's coming for membership this morning. And I was thinking about the sermon this morning in some ways is connecting to the reality that Kyle's coming this morning in some ways saying, I'm presenting as a hand, and I'm available to be used as I'm needed. Our foot. Some... some part of the body that the body needs, and membership is really saying, I'm coming, so I'm going to be available for use when you need me. And I'm going to be about two things, and this is something I'm about to ask you that we've never done before that I think would be a great follow-up. Yeah, you're asking for a a speech. Um, Would be a great follow-up to this sermon to incorporate into our membership covenant. Two questions. Kyle, will you be about the work of identifying your spiritual gift? Okay, he said yes. Secondly, when you identify it, will you walk in your gifting for his glory and for the building up of the body? I think that's membership right there. And it's saying, man, you can depend on me. So I think that's something that we could talk about incorporating into our membership covenant or possibly every time we present a family for membership. I think it's part of membership. So Kyle comes this morning for that purpose. Um, I'd like for Kyle, if you would stay up here just for a moment after we dismiss and y'all come up and meet Kyle. Sandy, come stand with Kyle. Sandy is, is, uh, is Kyle's uh, fiance and they are soon to be wed in January 7th. Okay, it's been a moving target a little bit, and it sounds like it's found a home January 7th, and I think it's going to be right here, right? Okay, so pray for this couple as they're preparing for uh, this wedding and this marriage. Pray for Kyle as he is seeking counsel, and uh, well, they're both seeking counsel on how to do this, but uh, pray especially for Kyle because he's taking on a full-time ministry. Uh, Sandy is as well, but I see sort of my, my, I have eye contact with Kyle as, as we have in many of our marriages in this family. We look to the man to lead his wife as Christ leads the church and loves the church. So pray for Kyle as he is readying for that endeavor. Y'all stand and we'll uh, dismiss. Come up and meet this couple afterward. Let me pray. God, I pray for Kyle and Sandy. Pray for their preparation for uh, not only the wedding ceremony, but for most importantly, the marriage Lord, I pray that their um, time over the next few weeks will be filled with um, considering truths about what marriage is, readying their heart uh, to worship in the actual ceremony and to worship in the preparation and to worship in the marriage. 
Lord, we pray for Kyle that you will ready his heart to love Sandy as Christ loved the church and that you'll ready Sandy to love Kyle and follow Kyle as the church follows and loves Christ. Lord, we pray for Kyle too. We pray for his pursuit of his gifting to identify what his gifting is and to step out in that gifting for the building up of the body and for your glory. Lord, we pray that as Kyle does that, that the body that was here this morning, that we will consider our gifting and that we'll hit that note and that like a symphony, we'll bring glory to you in Greenville. We're thankful for the word this morning, thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit. I pray that he will be about settling this from ear and head to heart over the course of this week as we discuss it, we consider it in small groups and as families. Pray that you'll be glorified in that work. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.